party, people. I'm Seppi, compulsive overeater. Oh my God, love seeing all of you people, honestly. Um, now, almost all of you know me. Almost all of you know I hate mornings. Even before COVID, I got my ass to this meeting in various stages of undress because it was just too damn early. So being here to speak is just, is just not happening. Um, but the point is that um, the only thing I know to do is to not do what I want to do. That's the only thing the program has taught Well, actually, there are many things the program has taught me. But I actually don't want to spend too much time talking about my story. I think just about everyone has heard my story. You all know how I got here. And even if you don't, it's nothing terribly exciting. Um, I've, I have... Um, I have 35 years of abstinence, so I've spent a much greater part of my life in abstinence than not. So I think that part of it is really what I have to draw upon. I mean, I forget, I have maybe 10 years, 12 years of taking comfort in food. I bang my toe and in something, so I'm living. Um, saw me and take a robot's class, which is terrible. Um, so one way or the other, Oh, I can sit? Good Lord. Okay. Um, um, I got to OA, and um, let's start, you know, forget how I got to OA. I just got to OA. Uh, but actually, no, I do want to say one part of it. The first time I came to a meeting, somebody brought me here. There were three people who talked about, um, who looked very, very normal, and they talked about having weighed about 300 pounds or having maintained a 100-pound weight loss. Jack, uh, Mario, and Kari. 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 I, uh, anyway, so I was in awe. You know, I was, it, was in the, it was a Sunday morning, uh, what we know as Serenity Sunday. It was in a bench on the corner of Beverly, uh, Santa Monica and um, Wilshire. And I was just hooked. How is it possible to keep off a hundred pounds till they mentioned God? And then of course I was, you know, up to the races because I really, really, with my upbringing, um, I had been taught that religion, you know, poo-poo religion, God is the crutch for uneducated masses. I hadn't had one day of religious training of any sort. I just totally looked down, down upon it. But exactly as they say, once I heard what happened in these rooms, you just can't get it out of your head. Um, I do want to say this part of my story that I've always said because it just shows what compulsion is like. After that meeting um, and after I decided I was too busy to come to meetings a couple of times a week and this God business was for losers, I got in a very bad car accident. I was in Cedar sinai and... Um, I had to walk with a walker for about three months while I did physical, um, bless you, honey, while I did physical therapy and I had broken my pelvis. And you know, when you break your pelvis, it is extremely painful because they can't put you in a cast and every single movement, whether it's sneeze, yeah, I couldn't even sneeze for six months because you know, by the time you go to sneeze, the pain takes away the urge. But anything you do, you call upon your pelvis, even if you reach to shampoo your hair. So I'm explaining this because with that level of pain 
friend with a walker, I walked up enough times to the refrigerator to start gaining weight again. So I, at one point, in one meeting, I said, that is a real commitment to compulsive overeating. But I don't think it's a commitment. I think that's the definition of compulsion. That is the definition. When, when every step hurts and, you know, when you pick it up, put it down, it hurts. When you go to reach and you pull the refrigerator door, it hurts. What else but compulsion explains doing it enough times to gain weight? And, you know, I was 23 at the time. I had the metabolism of a hummingbird. So that's what this disease does. It is a compulsion. So I came back to OA, um, log cabin, sat in the back, listened, always came in after the meeting started, always left before it ended, did not want to touch anyone, did not know any of the prayers, didn't want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to slide in and slide out and slide in and slide out. And I did that for a couple of months. And then one day, I don't know what the hell happened. I must have been asleep. I ended up not sliding out in time. And um, this lady came up to me and, and, you know, she, she saw me. I was her target. And she said, I have, you know, she started talking to me and she said, what's your problem? And I said, really, it's the, you know, sweets. And she said, do you think you cannot have anything sweet for 24 hours? And I said, absolutely not. Apparently you haven't heard a word I just said. Um, and she said, let's go on ahead and, um, can you not have fruit? Can you not have refined sugar? And I said, "What the hell does that mean?" And she said, "Follow me." So she took me to Irwan. You know, we went from Melrose and Melrose and Robertson to Irwan, which at that point was just very—it was very close. And then all of a sudden, she introduced me to the wonderful world of fruit juice sweetened shit. <laughs> so she said, "Can you not have?" your usual donuts and chocolate and everything and just get something here to have the taste of something sweet, but it's not refined sugar for a day. And that I could do. And that is, that has always been my abstinence. That was the body, that's how it started. And um, I would have massive amounts of fruit juice sweetened, you name it. I, you know, I always say I used to have fruit juice sweetened peanut butter cookies that were bigger than my head, but it was not a Mars bar. It was not an M&M. That's how it started. And then over the years, you know, you've all heard, well, you've all haven't heard me, but a few people like Port Terrell and my sponsors have heard of all of the excitement and the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The words are not coming. The, the embarrassing situations, there's not one word, but the embarrassing situations that come from an indulgence in having sugar-free stuff, literally having to dart out of events because I had the runs, because I had too many sugar-free things. But I'm abstinent. Why am I telling you all of this? Because I have, there are so many, in COVID, I've had the privilege of, because of Zoom, I'm all over the place, COVID has really worked for me. Because of Zoom, I attend a lot more meetings. Because of attending a lot more meetings, I have a lot more sponsees. Because of having a lot more sponsees, I hear so many more stories about struggling with food. And almost all of them 
come from people who have multiple addictions. And I keep having to say to them, you can't do this program the way you do booze. You can't do this program the way you do anything. Because there is an absolute, you know, scotch doesn't jump down your throat. Um, but you could be having a regularly abstinent meal and then find yourself not stopping. There's that, it's a very unique disease. It requires tremendous respect. It kills just as surely. Um, and, and it's a lot more deceiving to me. You know, I don't have any stories of getting drunk and not remembering and taking off my top and ruining a family member's wedding or anything. But I have multiple stories of ruining family events because I hated myself so passionately because once again, I had eaten something that I had said I would not eat. Don't ever underestimate the, the, this disease. Um, I'm all over the map. So that's why I talk about my food because I find so many people being so hard on themselves with the definition of abstinence. And um, my friend Terrell always says to me, the 12 <coughs> steps are not used to be, are not to be used as a, as a hitting stick or whatever, I'm, I'm butchering what he says but they're supposed to be guidelines to help us. You're not supposed to do six and seven and everything else, remove my character defects as a way of beating yourself up for non-perfection. They're just tools to help you do better, aspire to do better. And I really wanna encourage that in abstinence. I've heard people who you know, have abstinences of three meals a day and nothing in between say, I used to have three binges a day. And then over time, they got smaller. Well, I'm not three moderate meals and nothing in between person. I'm just no refined sugar. And I absolutely have to tell you, they, you know, I, to this day, I have to write my sponsor and say, I am not going to have this sugar-free thing that is perfectly within my abstinence because I've had it seven days in a row and my stomach is distended and it doesn't go down. I can't do this, and, and I have no shame about it. This is me. This is me in all of its glory. Um, so that's the. F but I do want to tell you something funny. Um, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Here's an example of food. For five, six, <coughs> more than that, six, seven years, I've had this problem of my skin itching. For and I've gone to four dermatologists, three. Um, to allergists, no one could figure out what the hell I'm itching. And it's, you know, I have no rash, but I would just be itching. And it's like a tick. I, I, when it hit, I was going, uh, it, it would drive me crazy. So I was taking massive amounts of Claritin, constantly do, uh, dozed off between Claritin and my ever-present coffee. It was a dance. But I, I refused to figure, you know, I just could not live with this frigging itching. Long story short, found out that uh, my body was reacting to all of the artificial sweeteners. Yeah, God has a fucking sense of humor. So the staple of my abstinence, my sugar-free candies, my sugar-free jello, my sugar-free 
popsicles. Thirty, how long have I not been doing that? Probably six months. Thirty-four years of putting artificial sweeteners in my body. It says, "I'm sorry, Seth. We're not going to play anymore." Um, talk about difficulty. I mean, this is these have been my crutch, and I still use them to some extent. But I've had to cut back dramatically, dramatically on what was the staple of my abstinence. Now I constantly, I can't do without the taste of sweets. I constantly have higher calorie but healthier sweets. So shit happens in abstinence. So that's enough about food. Um, let's talk about God. So um, I have absolutely turned into one of those people that um, I used to judge. I used to judge very harshly. Because every other word out of my goddamn mouth is God willing. I've just turned into a caricature of myself. Now, if I start going to therapy and I start carrying an animal and talk about my inner child, you have your permission to kill me. But I may get there because everything I've ever goddamn judged has happened to me. So it's perfectly possible that in 40 years of abstinence, this will not work and I'll have to go to therapy and I'll be here 10 years from now with a you know stuffed cat. Who knows? But as of now, I've turned into what I have judged adversely because I can't... I can't do anything without bringing God into this. And um, the single most important change in my program happened in step two of AA's 12 and 12. And it's the part that talks about everyone that has uh, the people who call themselves intellectuals. And it says, if we really were to call ourselves intellectual, scientific, whatever it says, we had to look at the data. And the data suggests this thing works. And that absolutely knocked the wind out of my sail. I had nothing. I had nothing. I had tried diets and therapy and fat farms. And here were thousands of people who had done something that I poo-pooed and they had kept their weight off. So that's the first time... I said, maybe my, my intellect isn't everything. And since, and then, so I started saying, okay, God, I, I, I believe you could, could and do care about alcoholics and addicts. That's chemical. I can't imagine you giving a rat's ass about me being a pig. You know, I just don't have backbone. I just want to eat nonstop. I think, this is way too pedestrian an issue for you to really pay attention to. But okay, if you're there, help me not eat. And then, you know, you've heard my story when I went into Vaughn's here and I walked up and down the aisle for 45 minutes and I kept putting chocolate in and taking it out and putting chocolate in. And finally, I walked out of Vaughn's without a pavilions without actually buying chocolate. And that was the first time that I said, okay, maybe this. God business actually cares about something so trivial. Um, I worked the steps, every last one of them, without believing they would do one lick of goods. Um, I have always done shit I don't want to do. I continue to do shit I don't want to do. The only difference between now, 35 years later, 
and when I first started is that I just, even in my grogginess, have enough data points, enough history to say, there is evidence if I keep doing stuff I don't want to do, I will get results that far exceed my expectations. So at least you know that your head is broken. So keep doing shit you don't want to do because even in your own history, you have enough data points to show you that you don't assess things accurately. Um, how am I doing on time? I have, okay. Eight minutes. Eight minutes. Thank you. Um, the big book, when I first started here, I used to just kind of skim it, and I understood the concepts, but to me, there were just a lot of, um, what's the word, analogies, comparisons, it was very, it, it was just like, I read it like a pretty instruction book. Now I read it like a textbook. Now I take it literally. Now I've taken to the point of looking, you know, not by my own will, but um, sponsor instructions, looking up words in the dictionary. I'm gonna read something to you, which I have never done. So I was told to look up trust, right? It came out in one of my six and sevens. So in the dictionary, trust is defined as firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. So it's not me, but I do have that trust in a some kind of a friggin' entity that in the interest of expedience, I call God, that has totally done, has been reliable, and has had the ability to do stuff that I sure as hell couldn't, never saw coming. This is the one I love, acceptance. So acceptance, I, I found three definitions, and my definition of acceptance has always been the third one, but the top two were actually better. So in the dictionary, acceptance. Number one definition, agreement with or belief in an idea. You agree. Five minutes, thank you. The second one, Definition: The action of consenting to receive or undertake something being offered, like a present. Something's being offered to me. The third one is the one that I've always had. Assent to the re reality of a situation without attempting to change or protest it. So I've always thought about, i got to accept, i got to assent to the truth, and I don't friggin' like it. I did not order this, let's send it back to the sender. Uh, but I think from now on, this is just like about a month ago that I had to look this up, I'm really liking the definition of the action of consenting to receive something or undertake what's being offered. How about if I start looking at stuff that happens in my life to someone is offering me something. I'm like, it's like a present. Imagine it's a cheesecake. Everything that happens in my life, imagine it's a cheesecake. Um, can you imagine what a life that would be if I could just, I keep thinking, okay, honestly, if the Russians were to send up a nuclear bomb, am I really going to go have a cheesecake while it lands on me? Is that the last thing I'm going to do? Um, I don't think so, but you know, it's good to fantasize about it. Um, so I just really can't, I can't say enough about, you know, I work in corporate America. I work for a large firm. We specialize in 
executive coaching, growing talent, placing CEOs, you know, I'm, I'm all about work. There's not one single thing we teach in leadership, in improving your career opportunities. There's not one single thing we teach and charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for that is not based on this program. Everything. So this now we have this new term, servant leader. <laughs> Leaders are supposed to be servants. So first of all, I hate the word servant, and probably because of my culture, but essentially that's what I've had to be in this program to not kill myself. Where, who the hell charged phrase? I mean, coined the phrase servant leader and charged God knows how much money for it. And we get it for free in this program. Um, there's not one thing we, you know, we teach that doesn't come back to the principles of this program. Whether it's, you know, listen to your employees, engage them, really be empathetic. That's all step five to me. I do that all the time with my sponsees. That's what I have to do. That's what I have to do to save my ass. Um, I love this program. I'm fanatical about it. I'm an opinionated old timer. Um, if we change the big book and change it to he, she, it, whatever, I'll fucking kill someone. Um, I, I just can't say how much I love this program and how it has saved my life um, and how firmly I believe in it. But believing in it is coupled with inaction buys me exactly nothing. So on a daily basis, I read the same goddamn thing upon awakening. I keep waiting for something new to emerge. Hasn't so far, but I do it anyway. I meditate for 13 minutes. Nothing life-altering has ever revealed itself to me. I still do it. <laughs> Write my gratitude list. I'm still a bitch five minutes after I finish it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just freaking nuts. But I don't know how much more nuts I would be if I didn't have this. That's the one thing I do know. And I do know that I am a very active member, high-functioning member of the society, and I still have not, have not developed the ability to think straight about myself. That muscle was irrevocably broken. As it relates to assessing situations, I'm still driven by fear, selfish and self-centered thoughts. Thank you. And um, I am eternally grateful for a very concrete, reliable, repeatable model that applies to every situation in my life. Thank you for letting me be of service. This is one of my beautiful babies. Okay. Okay, I think it is now, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay, who, would, who has a question? Yes, Ainsley. Um, um, you shared some of your like daily morning routine. 
Sure. The question was, um, I shared about my morning routine, but what are some of the other things that I do um, on a daily basis as far as my routine is concerned? Um, The daily, do I send my food to my sponsor when I need to? So again, um, I will always remain a compulsive overeater. So that means that there are times that I need to tell her, you know how I always have crackers with X, Y, and Z? For the next week, I need to write you to say every day that I don't, I can't have crackers. It's the same thing that I have all the time, but now I can't. So I say things to my sponsor when I need to, as far as food is concerned. I try to write her regularly. Um, I uh, fall short of that, but maybe six, <coughs> six days out of the week, I write her to check in. When I'm alert, I do an official 10th step. This is my, you know, do I owe any amends? Do I have any resentments? But many times it's just, I'm alive, I'm kicking, I'm exhausted, uh, good day, this is what I did. Um, I talk to, when, uh, when there's a time, I talk to my sponsees, you know, on their times. What else do I do on a regular basis? As I said, I've really enjoyed COVID, and as far as I attend a lot many more meetings. So now, in these two years, I probably average three meetings a week. Not all always. I sit in on a lot of AA meetings because um, I, to me, that's the mothership, and uh, that's a regular part of my program. And I would say before. It had, I probably made it to one or two physical meetings because this is what I look like on weekends. Those are my routines. Yes, ma'am. Thanks, Um I guess this question pertains to being compulsive in your health program and your role as a leadership. Can you talk about if you ever struggle between people pleasing when it looks like being a team player? Can I talk about if uh, how I um, work uh, between people pleasing and being a team player? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Um, that's a very good question. How do I deal with that? It kind of works itself out uh, in that if I do things I don't want to do, First of all, I'm doing it a lot less over the years. But what has happened is if I do things I don't want to do, I, uh, over and over again, I have resentment about it. Then I have to write about it. When I write about it and share it with someone, then I see what my part in it is. Did I do something to be liked? Or did I do something because it was part of my job? And I always share it also with a business person. So many times, my dear, my best friend who I work with says, Seppi, that's part of the job. Many things that I complain about doing, I'm reminded, you're not doing anybody a special favor. That is your job. But conversely, I also get many times when I share it with someone in my office that I trust, they say, you really don't have to do that. 
here's another way you can tackle it. So it's a combination of working the program, getting to the resentments, writing out what my part is. And if I see I have to do something, you know, one of the things I have to do, for example, here's a perfect example. I'm resp- one of my huge areas of responsibility is financials for my team. We have a huge budget and every functional leader is responsible for forecasting what they're going to spend in a given month. And these really brilliant people cannot do that if their life depended on it. Could not. Could not. They can run God knows what operations, but their definition of forecasting is that the minute they have to write a check, that that's forecasting. And forecasting is really to be done 90 days in advance. I've struggled with this for five years, seven years, ten years, trying to teach them, do you understand what the hell the word forecast means? But it's part of my job responsibility. I've gotten to the point where I don't complain to anyone, I don't bitch to anyone, I just write them and say, you're missing this, you're missing this, you're missing this. Because ultimately, it's my responsibility, and for very selfish reasons, I will do go the extra mile. Not people-pleasing, it's I want to look good. I want to look good to my boss. So even though my peers are supposed to do a better job of what they deliver to me, for various, and they don't, I go and do part of their job because part of it is I want to look good to my boss, which is selfish and self-centered. Part of it is it's my friggin' job. It's they, they pay me to do this. And I've learned from Chuck C. I do eight hours of work for eight hours of pay. I'm not doing anybody a friggin' favor. So that, I try to do That's the combination of that. I don't think anyone's actually ever accused me of being a people pleaser at this point. <laughs> I think I crossed that bridge a long time ago. Any other questions? Yes, my darling. Thank you. Sure. I struggle with looking at people that are nice, like these nice people. And I'm like, why can't I be like these nice people? Why do I have to be myself and just blurt things out? You know, whatever. Oh, God, absolutely. How do I, yeah, actually, that's a very good question. It really applies to me. Looking at people who are nice and saying, why can't I be like that? I very much appreciate that question, and I definitely feel it, because I can't tell you how many times I have had outbursts um, at work, inappropriate outbursts, and unfortunately, um, I have to do amends. When they say, when I first came here um, and I heard the road gets narrower, I just thought that, oh my God, that means as I get older, I have to eat less. Um, The road gets narrower because you can get, you yourself can sit with less discomfort. So when I burst out at someone um, at work all the time, I call them and apologize. And I've done it so many times to so many people that they kind of, you know, we've gone past the point of them going, huh? Because it's such an unusual behavior in corporate America to say, I'm sorry. 
I've stopped saying I'm sorry because I was selfish and self-centered. You know, that's way too much information. But I used to do that in the beginning. Um, I don't know why I'm mentally and bodily different. Really doesn't matter why. I wish my best friend at work is an extremely, she's Midwestern, no, Midwest, yeah, Michigan is mid, whatever she is. She's very reserved, she's very stoic, she's very measured. Um, she, her words are just, she's the poster child of say what you mean and mean what you say. I don't know why I can't be like her. I wanted to be like Marlene my entire, you know, I've known her for 27 years. She's been my model. But I'm past the point of beating up on myself or not being that. I am mentally and bodily different. End of freaking conversation. Nowhere in the big book does it say at one point I'm going to become like everyone else. It's a statement of fact. I'm mentally and bodily different. Again, you know, uh, frizzy hair. I always say this. There's never going to be a day where I wash my hair and it's going to dry straight. There's never going to be a day where my reaction to anything is measured. I just am. So I've stopped beating up on myself for not being nice. I just know that I have the tools to undo the wreckage as best as I can. And sometimes I can't undo a wreckage. Some people are not willing to take take your um, uh, apology. And I have to sit with that. And it's incredibly uncomfortable where you've hurt the feeling of someone you care about. I've done that many times and it sucks. I don't know, honey. I just have stopped trying to be. Uh, we have time for a couple more. Yes. Yeah. Um, what is your concept of a higher power and how did you come to that? Okay. And has it changed? Oh, yeah. What is my concept of higher power, and how did I get to it, and has it changed? Yes, um, definitely changed over the years. My concept right now is um, because so much of my insight is based on fear, my concept of higher power is uh, someone who protects me. Now, you know, it's still very much quite a bit of Santa Claus in there that I'm going to get what I want. Uh, but right now, more than anything else, it is someone who protects me and gives me the strength. I've got I've got, gotten to the point where I know how blessed I am in having the internal characteristics to do what is required of me. I don't question myself, do I have the strength to do this anymore? And early in my abstinence, I did. So many times I would, you know, I thought, I can't do this, God, you gotta do this. I can't do this, God, you gotta do this. I'm at a point where practical experience that I've done so much shit that I didn't think I was gonna be do, be, uh, be called upon to do, that now I just say, okay, God, you've got my hand, let's just, Let's just get on with it and help me do what you want and not what my brilliant mind thinks we should be doing here. It has changed. It was a lot more of a Santa Claus. Here's my shopping list. Go to it, please. Um, 
it's a lot more five minutes it's a lot more a gentle and it's a lot more gentle and less frantic uh, but there's still moments of uh, frantic right now my my best friend this woman I talked about has a disease that no one knows what the hell it is and um, it might be something really bad so I'm frantic I'm on my knees every morning saying you got to take this man there's nothing I can do on this one you got to take this so there's still a measure of franticness um, but it's a lot calmer quieter just like a strong it's like I feel like a bubble wrap that I will bounce off of things I'm wrapped you know a, a knife is not going to get to me but I got to do the movement and it's just a, a steep quieter thing sorry that's all I can say yes my darling thank you um, for your great need and um, I really appreciate the definitions of words and I've started to do that mm -hmm. boy it's amazing yep um, the, diff the contrast of my thesaurus and what's in the book. Um, the, the word trust has really come up for me a lot lately with people because mm -hmm. I have a lot of expectations, mm -hmm. which is a rough road sometimes because you know, the big book talks about it, which is human. Mm -hmm. How, and this is a little bit into the third step, how has trust evolved for you? Sure. Trust has evolved in that a lot of um, humans that I thought would be in my life now are not. And a lot of people I, you know, I, I don't know if you, you know, early years in sobriety, in abstinence. Why do I say sobriety? I'm not even in AA. I always used to say I didn't come to OA to have friends and companionship. I have, you know, I'm Persian. I have a big family. I have lots of friends. I didn't come here for that. I've gotten to the point where actually the most stable, repeatable relationships in my program are all, I mean, in my life are all program people. How did that happen? Relationships with family members and friends changed. Um, I changed. I changed. I think I shared this with you last night, yesterday, but I'll say it again. Um, I had two very dear friends, very dear. I used to talk to them in early abstinence three, four times a week. I wouldn't, couldn't go through a week without comparing notes with them on everything. And over time, they disappointed me enough. Now, that, that's a very judgmental statement. I'm just, you know, I'm talking. I'm the leader. I can't be judgmental. They You know, you have an issue with me, take it up with someone else. They disappointed me enough. I cried about it enough. I wrote about it enough to know that I am not getting what I what I want from them anymore. And really, the basis of our friendship had been both of us, you know, both with both of these parties, the basis of the relationship had been we were um, we were bonding in our respective diseases. One of them was a bulimic, and I had been with her, and the entire unpredictability of and being um, being. Uh, desperate and hyper and quiet and really sad and really up, that goes up and down with our, you know, when I'm binging, when I'm not binging. So what I consider to be excitement in that friendship over time turned out to be something I consider chaos. Another friend, 
you know, he'd been a staple of my life. He broke some really bad news to me that, you know, my family from Iran called him. He, he had absolutely been a staple in my life. But over and over again, he stood me up. He stood me up. And I felt like I'm at a point where when I, in, in 12 steps, when we say we're going to do something, we do it. I've never been stood up by an OA person. Maybe I don't enjoy this anymore. And that person kind of, it's not like I don't talk to them, but I never make any plans with them. Hey, Mikey, how are you doing, honey? All well? Awesome. And he says, let's get together. Absolutely. I have no expectation of ever scheduling anything. I'm done saying let's do it there. But if I say to Terrell, Terrell says, do you want to meet? Yep, I'm there, right there. So I trust humans less, not because there's anything wrong with them. I am sure I have severely disappointed just as many people. I'm positive that I have, I have been a colossal failure to just as many people who don't call me anymore. And I just kind of say, I have, God, I'm doing the best I can, man. I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to trust that you are going to give me everything I hear in these beautiful rooms. And I'm not somehow so uniquely defective that where it says you're going to find the companionship that you, you seek that somehow it doesn't apply to Sefi. It applies to thousands and millions of alcoholics, but somehow I'm so different that it's not gonna apply to me. And that's how it goes for me now. I hope that answers your question. Okay, thank you very much for letting me share.